Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, Security in the Public Sector with special guest Jim Richberg, Field CISO of Public Sector at Fortinet. Jim, welcome great to, to the show. Great to be with you, Darren. It's great to be here with you. Hey, Jim, we had a, a just a brief discussion. It was really interesting, and you brought up some things, and you wanted to go more. You were so excited. I said, stop, don't. <laughs> we want our audience to hear this discussion. Um, so I, I know we're going to have a great discussion today. But first, Jim, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Okay, well, thanks, Darren. Uh, you know, I spent, uh, this is my second career. And I spent my first career in the other older Intel community, not the people who use Intel products, but the U.S. intelligence community. I spent 20 years at one of the three-letter agencies, and then I was the national intelligence manager for cyber for the director of national intelligence. So I've seen cyber, you know, from both sides, played offense, played defense, helped build cyber threat intelligence, ran whole of nation cyber programs under two presidents. So uh, I... Retired from government, I went to Fortinet, you know, one of the biggest cybersecurity companies in the ecosystem because it does a lot of work with government and I understand government. And I was always good at being able to not only answer the immediate question somebody had, but put it in a bigger picture and say, okay, this is a symptom of a broader problem. And that's what I do a lot with the uh, public sector in the United States and also globally. Uh, I think I was a cyber evangelist so, before we had that term. But before they were there, it's, it sounds like it. So you've got a large experience in cybersecurity and public sector. This is great. So and when you were talking, it says, hey, not all public sector cybersecurity is the same. So well, because not all can, the public sector is Can you elaborate on what that? Yeah, yeah I mean, let's, let's stick to the U.S. just for a minute. Uh, you know, federal, state, and local are all different. They're different in terms of resources. They're different in terms of mission. Uh, they're different in terms of the cybersecurity challenges that they face. And, uh, you know, let's look at who do you interact with as a citizen in the U.S.? You interact with your local company. You do a little bit less yeah. with state services. Uh, yeah, when you go to get your driver's license, but hey, we've been able to virtualize that. And you do less direct interaction with the federal government. So as we've talked about, digital transformation, you know, it's been local government, the people who arguably are the least resourced, certainly in terms of human experts, who've had to figure out how to do robotic process automation. You and I were talking about, you know, chat AI and things that allow you to really use AI-driven automation. It's been more a back office issue for state and certainly federal government than it has been for local government. So the paradox has been the people you interact with the most are arguably the least well positioned to compete with the private sector in terms of offering those services and to our conversation, securing them. That's that's really interesting when you think about it, right? Because the things that you said, the things that are most important to us in our day-to-day -day lives are the least funded as far as cybersecurity yeah. protection and, th and things like that. I mean, one of the, one of the, and again, there, I won't say all of the challenges are unique for each. There are some common ones. And one of them, frankly, is uh, you and I come from companies that are well-resourced and can hire the best and the brightest people, including from government. So government 
always is going to have a skills and workforce gap, especially acute in an area like cybersecurity. There are people, uh, you know, they get to a point in their career, they have families and whatever, that sometimes the lure of public service uh, gets outweighed by the fact that they can come work on innovative things for the private sector in cybersecurity. So government is always, it's never going to hire its way to cybersecurity nirvana. They're always going to have to find smart ways to do it. Or I come from the intelligence community. They were always the farm team in one sense. You had people who came on because we had a unique mission. It was challenging. It was stimulating. It was rewarding. Um, you know, but for a lot of people, when they got uh, to a certain point in even fairly early in their career and they discovered a bureaucracy and somebody would come and say, hey, you can come or in multiples as much come work private for sector. Me. Yeah. Come work for me. You know, that's a gap that they're that's a challenge that's going to transcend state, local and federal. But the feds are better resourced so, at this and certainly local government. Well, and that's what I was going to ask. I mean, the feds, they work on some pretty fun projects, right? So if you're a real techno guy, you're going to go work for the feds instead of Folsom, the city of Folsom, where I live. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, I come out of the intelligence community. They were doing Mission Impossible stuff. That is cool to work on. They're doing stuff, maybe yeah. relying on expertise your, your company and my company have, but they are doing stuff that is, you know, Mission Impossible in some cases. And that's fun to do. And some people, I'm, I'm case in point, I stayed for 30 plus years doing that, uh, you know, making a feeling like I was making a difference. But not everybody, I mean, frankly, I think even a minority of people who come into government are going to stick for a career. And government, frankly, is starting to recognize that. So they're allowing, they're beginning to think about how do you bring people in who are mid-career, who come from the cybersecurity industry on the outside. You know, we, we talk about, and I, I'm hoping we cover in, in the course of this conversation, uh, the, the need for trust and the need for partnership, because neither the public nor the private sector can do everything on its own. And I certainly saw this in government when there would be a breach or an incident from the private sector. We could talk into a blue in the face about at that point, talk to DHS or talk to the FBI. The reality is somebody in the breached company was going to call whoever they knew in government, whether it was somebody at that agency, whether it was somebody at Marine Fish and Mammals, they were going to, you're going to phone a friend. And how do you somebody. become friends? Yeah, some you know, some you of know. it's social some of it is trust you built up by working together. So the kind of being able to rotate people back and forth, work in adjacent cubicles back when we were all in the office, allowed you to really get to know somebody, to recognize what their interests were and, and develop that kind of trust that really is instrumental. And I think part of the challenge for government is find smart ways to recognize there are people who may come on and say, I, I, I appreciate public service. It's an important calling. Um, I, I'm willing to come make a contribution for a while. I'm not going to stay for a career, but I really want to give back for a while. And similarly, put people from government so, out in the private sector. They become more out informed in private sector so they can learn. The yeah. Bingo. So I, I, a question around that, um, the, the federal government can, can attract more talent than a local, a local or state government can. So what hope do they have to attract that talent that they need for their cybersecurity um, positioning and, and how they do their work? Or well, are there some unique models that we can maybe look at? 
Well, and, and this is where it gets really interesting, especially in the United States. Local government is, is you know, I talk to a lot of smaller local governments who don't even have CISOs. Forget cybersecurity staff who are on government. It's a contracted service. If you're lucky, it's coming from elsewhere in your state. It's not even always coming that way. So they were having remote provisioning and remote services uh, well before COVID and well before, you know, all of us in the white collar world went to remote. So, you know, even the smallest state out there has critical mass at the state level. There's a state CISO everywhere. They all have they may not have enough of them, but they have cybersecurity experts. So I spend have, a lot of time right. helping helping them figure out how do you how do you regionalize some of this. Uh, so sometimes you recognize there are small jurisdictions that maybe they need to band together. They get critical mass. They become a big enough market. They get enough data that they can be, potentially solve it that way. Um, and sometimes that means it's done at the state level. But then, of course, we're, I recognize that there's a dynamic at play between state and state and uh, local politics. You know, sometimes someone in a local jurisdiction doesn't want to have to do what they think that, you know, the people in the capital, state capital are telling them, just as states right. don't want to do what Washington says. So it's an attractive solution, and I think a lot of it works by feder by federating it, not not at the national level, but within a state it becomes a provider, critical mass, etc. Some places it works, some places it doesn't. But that's an attractive option. You know, it's interesting when we've been talking about this. Something popped in my head. It was the um, it was when we started moving west back in the 1700s. I don't know why this popped in my head, but it does in the cyberspace as well. You you started getting groups of people that would work together to protect themselves against the the Native Americans at, at the time or against the French or whoever was attacking them, right? That they formed towns and communities and they formed counties that that they had protection against their enemy at the time. What you were mentioning there is very similar, right? I've got um, cities and towns that are like, well, I can't protect myself from cyber criminals, so maybe I need to reach out to other cities or the state to, to, to get that. And now we have national defense, right? And we have state militias. And maybe there needs to be a call for a state cyber militia or um, a regional cyber militia the same way that, that we did uh, back in the frontier days. Well, and, and ironically, the, some of that is actually being done, um, you know, the National Guard, the National Guard, you know, the military is big on cyber. We have, you know, Cyber Command right. uh, as a unified command. And there are essentially cyber components in everything, including the National Guard. And there are states where recognizing, especially for small business and for local government, and we saw this a lot, it just helped secure the midterm elections. Uh, cyber experts from some of these National Guard units were called up by the governor and sent to actually help secure local election infrastructure, recognizing that these peoples had no internal expertise. This is, a, this is a governmental function, a governmental priority. So yeah, we actually did use expertise that you know was resident in oh, one part of government to help another part of government. Yeah, that, that's National interesting. National Guard and Reserve Forces. Know that. Were, yeah, we're, we're literally called up to, you know, to active duty to help secure election infrastructure. Something a governor no, no, could do. That, you know, they, they call it yeah, the national something a governor could do. 
But but what about a more generalized sense? Because when we talked earlier, you said the attacks on local and state government are different than the attacks on federal government for cybersecurity. Yeah, they're very and, and different. Remember, right? you know, we we talk about you know it's those citizen facing services that you especially have at. at Local government, but you know the existential problem when you talk to state and local government, you can't get far into a conversation without ransomware coming up. That is top of mind yeah. for those people, uh, you know. And I remember the first time I started reading about you know what is essentially a really tiny town in uh, getting hit with ransomware and then paying you know a hundred thousand dollars. And my first question was, where the heck did they come out of with that money? You know, very quickly. Well it turns out that was insurance. We were talking about collective defense. I mean at the end of the day, cybersecurity, you and I both recognizing this, is about risk. And it's about managing risk. And one of the classic ways to try to manage risk is through insurance, transfer the risk to somebody else. And that's one way to deal with ransomware that especially local government has said I'm going to try to rely on transferring the risk to a third party, an insurer. Now, the interesting thing, Darren, is um, I, I've been conflicted about this for a long time, about whether that really helps or hurts. Uh, because Yeah, I was just thinking that myself. Government budgets are public. They're public record. It doesn't take much to go online and look and say, oh, look, here's a payment from this town to Acme Insurance Company, and it's for this amount. Well, you can pretty much guess what their coverage is. You can guess so how when much they get their hit insurance for, policy is. For, yep. Exactly. So when they get hit for ransomware, it doesn't come in for a billion bitcoins. It comes in for that level. And when you have a ransomware, the insurer comes in and takes over the negotiation and takes over the payment. In one sense, insurance is good because, you know, you put out the standards that, you know, they help to raise the tide of cybersecurity. If you have to do certain things, you get a policy. On the other hand, sometimes I feel like it's the it's a publicized easy button for saying, okay, this is going to be a quick payout. I'm not going to hit these people who I'm going to have to explain how does virtual currency work with and where do you get Bitcoin from. You know, their, their negotiator from the insurance company is going to come in. They'll settle the claim. Uh, I mean, these people work together all the time. The, the negotiators are going, hi, you know, basically, you know, I dealt with you last week. You know, so insurance can help and insurance can hurt. But for local government in particular, ransomware, I think, has been the the, the top of mind threat. Elevate it to the federal government. We talk about advanced persistent threats. Those threat actors who have got sophisticated capabilities tend to be very clandestine. They often do, a, to use the, the aviator's term, go low and slow. You know, they're willing to get into a network progressively over time, and they're trying to steal intellectual property or national security secrets. And usually advanced persistent threat is a... Um, a euphemism for nation state. Uh, so when you're the federal government, you are disproportionately worried about being targeted by other nation states, less so at state and local government. Now, you may have, you know, a country like Russia, where their doctrine is you go for the soft underbelly, you distract your adversary. So especially with what happened in Ukraine, I've heard an uptick in state and local right. government saying, oh, my gosh, am I maybe in the crosshairs for something happening around the world? Or, you know, remember the not Petya botched ransomware, which is really destructive malware, um, in 2017 that was launched into Ukraine, but very quickly spread globally. These people say, am I, you know, at a minimum at risk of being collateral damage for a cyber conflict being waged on the other side of the world?
that that is really interesting that you brought that up because normally a small town is like, well, I'm protected. I'm the middle of the United States. I'm not going to be in a war, right? Because I'm in, I'm safe and protected. But now because of the internet and because of virtualization, everything's a digital economy. I can now be attacked from uh, Ukraine or Russia or China or North Korea or who, who knows, or some script kitty high school student somewhere. I can now be attacked from anywhere in the world. That that's kind of that's kind of worrisome, isn't it? Well, and, and Darren, sometimes it's on purpose, and sometimes it it's not even intentional. Uh, you know, I remember about ten years ago yeah. when we saw one of our our adversary nation states starting to look at critical infrastructure in the U.S. and starting to scan uh, industrial control system ICS components, and they were looking for things really yeah. in, uh, you know, in pumping, and they were looking for things in the en energy industry. Well, guess what? It turns out that a lot of those same components, programmable logic chips, get used in elevator systems in buildings. Uh, so all of a sudden, real estate across the country starts you know starts getting hit by these people not because a bad guy wanted to seize control of the elevator and never let you get off but because they were they were looking they got out through through yeah they they literally ended up in places even they didn't intend to be you know so part of this is yeah you need to worry that they may go after you intentionally i mean if you're if you are in a cyber con if you're in a, a geopolitical confrontation with the U.S. and you can cause bad things to happen, alarming things to happen in the U.S., then you know you arguably will distract us. Russia has this doctrine of of escalate to de-escalate, and that can mean broaden the conflict. So yeah, sometimes you worry. Some of these more forward-leaning local government people are saying, you know, I, you're right. This is the first time that I might actually be targeted because otherwise I look at it and go, why would they come after? My water. Why do I care? Yeah, why do I care? I'm just why, a small. I'm just a small municipality or whatever. Yeah, but certainly with not Petra and the fact that it it spread globally rapidly and it was destructive has made some of them say, "Look, you know, to your point, we're all interconnected. This is globalized services, uh, and we certainly saw with something like solar winds that everybody's using the same things yeah. and inherits." common vulnerabilities they may not recognize they have. So it's especially scary for local government. But then put yourself in the shoes of, you know, a federal CISO. They know these people are coming after them. And a lot of them also move large amounts of money. So they need to worry about the criminals coming after them as well. So they get, if you will, the worst of both worlds. Right, but on the other hand, right. they're better no, reasons. No, exactly. Yeah. They they are in and they know the space really well. Um so I, I understand that. Now, you you mentioned something I want to dive into a little bit because it's dear to my heart, and that is critical infrastructure uh, security. And you mentioned industrial control systems because uh, um, CISA has a list of, what, 16 sectors in um, critical infrastructure, but not all of them have industrial control systems as part of it. I worry about that part because they're actually affecting the real world as we know it with pumps and motors and sensors and they're controlling dams and energy production and, and oil uh, movement. And it, it, there's a lot in that space. I really worry about this stuff because the traditional model that they've been using in the past, which is isolation, which is the Purdue model, is starting to crumble. And 
I mean, we, it seems like we're vulnerable. I mean, do you see that as well? Or is this just Darren paranoid because I don't know enough about it? Well, I, I mean, I think the day, you know, we used to 10 years ago talk about the, the first line of security for uh, for operational technology and for ICS components was uh, the air gap. As you said, they weren't connected through uh, to the Internet and security through obscurity. You know, a lot of these things right. are around yeah. for a very long time. And who knows where to go find that old component? Well, thanks to search engines, it's all discoverable. And now, you know, just as we have digital transformation, you know, connected everything in our lives, you know, from our watches to, you know, our refrigerators to the Internet, that's happened on OT as well. And I remember 15 years ago, if you had an OT system that was Internet accessible, it was probably because someone had made a mistake. They'd forgotten to shut something off after maintenance. Now, yeah. you know, I, I'm hard pressed. To <laughs> or find, they put a patch uh, cable uh, between two switches. Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when security and convenience clash, convenience always wins. You know, people want to get the yeah, job okay. done. That's job number one. Um, but now, you know, I think it's almost by exception other than something like nuclear power plants. Assume I assume in my conversations with organizations that have OT is the OT is connected to the internet, and in many cases, it's connected connected to the corporate IT as well. So that air gap is gone, and and that has implications. You said that we have the sixteen critical infrastructures; they all have a lead federal agency to be their partners. The federal government has uh, carrots and sticks. I mean, it can give you an incentive to do something, or it can create a requirement, whether it's a regulation or you know the exec the legislative branch gets involved and actually passes a law. We try to shape behavior, and obviously, you you win more friends, you get farther if you can you know use persuasion and incentives to do something rather than say you must do this. But you know the federal government tries to shape the way these critical infrastructures work, and part of that is share information with them. You know, so they all have information sharing and analysis centers, ISACs. They all get information. But to your point, Darren, it's not one size fits all. It's a microcosm of the conversation we had about the public sector. All 16 sectors are critical. That's what, you know, what leads them to be. That, that. That's in the definition, right? <laughs> but but there's a subset of them that, uh, you know, they're called systemically important. I mean, I, I, I hate this. Actually, I hate and love this acronym, SICKIES, systemically important critical infrastructures. You know, you know, there's a, three or four of those. But, you know, at the top of the list, Darren, uh, I, I call this the supercritical, the hypercritical infrastructure of all is power, is energy, power generation and power yeah. transmission. Because take that away, and in very short order, the other 15 are going to shut down. You know, you run out of backup power, you're, you're dead in the water no matter yeah, that's, whether you're that's, medical or transportation. Yeah, that's that's and, true. I, I didn't think of that, right? Without power, our economy comes to a screeching halt, and all the other critical infrastructure comes down. Um, so in American life how, in general how is, beyond that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how secure is our power grid? It's a good news, bad news story, Darren. I mean, the, the you know, the it's it is a highly diversified vertical uh, sector. You know, you've got, you know, four or five yeah. big yeah, power companies at the top that are really capable. Um, and then on the other hand, you have small rural electrical cooperatives that, you know, it's 25 to 50 people providing power for a couple of counties. 
They don't even have a full-time IT person, much less a security expert. Now, there's fairly much resilience built into the grid. Mother Nature stress tests it for us all the time. I mean, we've got the three the big interconnects yeah. in the electrical grid, but it, you know, they're used to dealing with things that cause problems. So you can lose a certain number of players and the resilience will kick in. The problem is, you know, law of cascading failures. When something goes down, it puts more pressure on the other things. Uh, you know, you you lose enough of them, and it and it becomes something that causes a, a bigger problem. Um, and again, it's something where there's a there's an issue of power generation, and then there's an issue of power transmission. They're related, but they're separate problems. And we've seen even on the physical side, when we've had people running around shooting up power substations for electricity, it turns out we don't have a huge. It's not like you can go down to Home Depot and get new generators and new you know. This is stuff or insulators or whatever they've destroyed. Ringo, yeah. We don't keep a lot of that stuff. Uh, it's just in time, you know. They, they, you know. So there is some fragility. Uh, there's some resilience as well. But the big players, I think, are in relatively good uh, position in terms of their security and their maturity. It's the small guys you got to worry about. You can lose a certain number of them uh, without reaching critical mass, but you know. You, you never know. Remember some power outages that one that turned out to be a squirrel chewed on a line and, you know, and it led to this cascading failure here in the Northeast 15 years ago. So Murphy's law strikes in weird ways, but I'm, I worry more about power than anything else. Cause if you lose that one, you know, we're, we're all, we're all down and not just critical infrastructure, well, society in general. Society. Yeah. I mean, we, we experienced that in California quite a bit because of the forest fires that we have. We, and and we've seen a major shift in power grid. They they moved from really large grids to microgrids, so that they could shut off instead of several counties at the same time. They could shut off just a community where where things were. So I am seeing some change on the physical side, and I'm guessing similar on the cybersecurity side as well. Then, yeah, yeah. But but uh, you know, to sort of bring the conversation back to government, it's. This is a real challenge. You know, it, it's local government who really have been the ones innovating in a lot of the uh, digital transformation that they've been doing. I think COVID for them, um, you know, put so much more stress on local government. You know, the two months after uh, March 2020, we watched unemployment insurance applications, which go to state government, spike by 3000 percent. At the same time, they sent their workforce yeah. home. And we're working less efficiently. Well, robotic process automation, chatbots, that was a lifeline. Forget people feeling like you're taking my job away. This was the only thing that was keeping these people from, from sinking. Uh, you know, so, so innovation became really, really critical. Uh, and, and we innovated. It's just like we sent people home with laptops. And you wanted that kind of connectivity to occur and to occur securely. Well, it, you could measure whether it's whether it occurred or not. Did they have the devices? Did they have the platforms? Did they have the bandwidth? Right. We couldn't just directly measure security. And I think in the year after COVID, we watched ransomware in against state and local government spike by eleven hundred percent. Most of it came in through these endpoints. People are working at home. This is not industrial grade security, which they may or may not have had in the office, but they cer almost certainly don't have at home. And uh, you know, and, and that was a new systemic weakness and it got exploited. So again, there's a lot of pressure on local government, state government, but you know, the paradigm is changing and, and um, you know, one of the buzzwords in cybersecurity of the last couple of years is zero trust. 
you know, I've, right. I've always been conflicted about this. I come from the national security community. Uh, you know, in, in one sense, I call this one old wine in, in new bottles. You know, I come from a community where we were all about information was only you're in California. You go, yep, I like that. But, uh, you know, uh, yeah. we talked about need to know for access to information. Heck, I worked at a, at a facility where you couldn't even go physically to some parts of the building if you didn't have the right kind of badge, the right color badge. So we were about segmentation and role based access control before we even had that term. So. You know, zero trust, you know, the idea that you want to you, you will bestow trust, but it, you want to verify the user, the device, the activity uh, is something that allows you to say, I don't need to work in a perfectly secure environment to be able to secure the data, the processing. I can make this all work. Now, zero trust is a terrible name because especially for people in the public sector who may be making financial sacrifices to stay there instead of work for you and I, uh, you know, you say, wait a minute, I'm. Yeah, I'm in a position of public trust, but now you're telling me you have zero trust in me. I'm not trustworthy. Yeah, that's I'm not trustworthy. And that's not really what the paradigm means. But that is a tool that allows you to say, okay, I can allow you to work on the same network that your kids may be doing. Who the heck knows what going to interesting places. (laughs) uh, And yet the, the work you're still doing for me in government is secure or is securable or, and, and guess what? It's just not big brother looking over your shoulder. This is a safety net because I learned this in, in my time in government. You know, if we in security stand in the way of the mission, people are going to get the job done. They're going to do what they have to do to get the work done. Security needs to not be Dr. No, you know, you can't, you know, we, we have to give you tools and procedures to get to do the work. So if zero trust becomes a way of saying, I've got your back, if you make a mistake, this is a safety net that may say, did you mean to do that? Did, you know, this is unusual. I'm going to stop it. I'm going to block it. And I may even warn you uh, because this is not Orwellian Big Brother. This is, uh, this is something where we recognize security is trying to help you get the job done. Well, I, and I like I like what you said about zero trust because I I felt the same way around it. It's a philosophy, not an architecture. And yeah. and what I saw was we're bundling things we've already said were best practices in the cybersecurity realm, with a couple small changes like temporal access. I only have access or authentication for a period of time, where before we always said, oh, I got you got access, you got access forever. Um, that has changed, uh, and, and I think that's a good thing. Um, so, but I, I think zero trust to me is a philosophy that brings all the best practices together, so, and, and, and that's and, why and I don't like the term either. I, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. But here's the interesting thing. You know, it, it came from government. It came from the federal government. You know, they created this. You know, before we called it zero trust, we were operating that way. We had need to know. We had segmentation of data before segmentation was was even a thing for the private sector. They had flat networks, um, and then the private sector had a series of breaches, high profile breaches, about a dozen years ago, and they figured out had to work globalized enterprises where you needed to access the data, sometimes even have sensitive access in the, to the data and to be able to secure it at scale. And I was, and yet government didn't realize that this could be done. I had people in government as I retired at the end of 2018 who still said zero trust. The only way to do zero trust is to air gap. 
and then to watch your network from within. And I said, no, we've learned how to do this now that I'm in the private sector. I see this. Well, it took the executive order that President Biden signed in 2021, where the federal government said, we're going to move to zero trust. We're going to move there very quickly uh, for government to then look to the private sector for the solutions. And government has, federal government has tended to be good at generating the intellectual construct for things. So in, you know, uh, the NIST cybersecurity framework, which I helped build the first one. Yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah was intended as a model for risk management in the federal government. And it took on a life in the private sector and arguably became an international standard. So the government tends to be good at framing a problem in a technology and vendor neutral fashion. The people on the outside go, yeah, that works for me too. So in the case of zero trust, the government put together a strategy, multiple strategies. They put together a maturity model. They put together, you know, a list of a way to do it that the people in the private sector said, oh, this works for us too. And the private sector then has served goods and services that map back to that. So they're able that to can move support the needle yeah. for government and for the private sector as well. So it's an example of a partnership. The government could drive things intellectually where if any of us did it, people would go, okay, well, this is about competitive advantage for your company. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you where, selling me? And uh... the rules of the game, the goalposts all got set you know, by, by government for its own purposes, people agreed it made sense. And then we're all marching down the field, the same, uh, you know, playing by the same basic rules and with the same equipment. So that's an example of beneficial so, hey, partnership. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jim, this has been a, a wonderful conversation and we could go on for hours. I know we could, um, but we're out of time. Um, so I appreciate, do you have any, any last words for the, the people that are in public sector, um, whether they're at state and local governments or federal governments, any last words of wisdom on cybersecurity or, or how to move forward? So, so Darren, I've been talking a lot uh, about the differences in the different parts, levels of government, but there really are three common problems. And I want to touch on those really quickly in closing. Um, one is they're all focused now on how do they integrate security across their governments. That matters whether I'm trying to do departments in my local government or agencies of the federal government. Uh, you know, it's a two-part problem. I want to understand what's going on situational awareness, I want to drive integrated response. And I've seen a number of different ways to do that and building blocks to apply for. So, you know, don't reinvent the wheel. Talk to others about how to frame that problem, break it into bite-sized chunks and make progress on it. The second piece of advice is work with, not against technology trends. I mean, we're seeing increasing power driven by the things you all put together at Intel, driven by the kind of things we do here at Fortinet. There's increasingly convergence between things like networking and security. The same products can do both things. So you can zero trust. I can get the kind of connectivity that I need, and it's innately done in a fashion that's securable. So work with Moore's law, not in opposition to it. You know, so so that's the second piece of advice. And the third is partnership. You know, I ran intelligence. Uh, I ran threat information. You can't secure yourself against a threat that you don't understand, much less that you can detect. Uh, and then, so build these bridges within government and with public and private sector. But the thing that drives me crazy is, uh, especially at national government, people say, I've got a problem. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and build a solution from scratch. Why don't you look and see what somebody else is doing? What someone else someone has already done. Government, yeah. Or something in the private sector. If you need to make tweaks, that's good. But it's you know, odds are really, really high that somebody else has already thought of, addressed, and probably solved 
that same problem. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Jim, again, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate the conversation. I learned every time I, every time I do these, I learned something new. And uh, today, uh, most definitely I learned a lot. So thank you. That's my pleasure, Darren. I, I, as you can tell, I'm passionate about this stuff. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.